Well, uh, welcome. It's good to see you all. No matter where you find yourself tonight, no matter what you've done, no matter what you believe, we want you to feel welcome in RUF. We stand for Reformed University Fellowship. We're trying to figure out what it looks like to love God, love others, and to love Wofford. We're doing this imperfectly, but we are glad to walk with you during these formative years of college to help you grow in your faith. Before we love God, before we love others, before we love Wofford, we're more fundamentally bound by the reality. This is the center of who we are, the center of reality, the center of the scriptures, that Jesus loves us. And so whether it's sermon or RUF lunch or Bible studies or large, whatever it is, we want you to see, hear, and experience that before anything else, Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. We're continuing in, in Genesis. We're finally are at chapter three. Um, at this tragic chapter, uh, the God's first word on sin. We've seen the Bible's first word because on, on all kinds of things in life, life and death, sin, sickness, sin and shame, work and rest. The Bible's first word, that is the book of Genesis. It's season one, episode one. It's the pilot story, the pilot episode of the biblical story because it's a story about God making all things new, ridding the world of what we're going to talk about tonight, and that is sin. The first word on sin. Here's a phrase that I want you all to remember. There's one phrase. I want you to remember this. Life is not the way it's supposed to be. Life is not the way it's supposed to be. I I think that's a great summary of the effects of what we just read. We read a true event that was a tragedy for all of us, and we woke up sad and sick with families who are sick with cancer. We wake up and we are moody and we can't control our habits and we have broken relationships with our neighbors and with our bodies and with food and with drink and with money and with material goods. We live in a, life, in a world where life is not the way it's supposed to be. We feel this. This story just reinforces what you and I already feel. We're watching this as the war in Ukraine unfolds. Life is not the way it's supposed to be. And the Bible has a word to describe why. And that word is sin. And I don't know what kind of baggage that brings up for you, but I want to say that the biblical scriptures say that sin is far more nuanced and deeply rooted than breaking some Bible rules. That sin, what we're going to see tonight, the two points, what sin is and what sin does, that's what we're going to do. And I hope that you see that it's much more existential and spiritual and like deeply rooted in us. And it started here at this event in Genesis chapter three. I remember whether like, it's not just the heaviness of like Ukraine and divorce and depression and addiction. I mean, it's even just like all that we went through during the COVID, COVID times, like the isolation of it, the sickness, the up and down, like just the unknown of it. Like this is a, a like an apocalyptic wasteland. It felt like for two years. If anyone, like, we were all reminded that this is a world that is sick with sin. And that's how we got here. What sin is, what sin does. Let's do the first one, what sin is. The first thing that we see is that sin begins with this lie. This lie that, that provokes and invites with Adam and Eve, the serpent so crafty in this, a spiritual insecurity about God's voice. 
Look at verse, um, or is it verse, yeah, verse one, right at the beginning. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? Verse two, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch Touch it lest you die. Verse four, but the serpent said to the woman, you shall not die. Contradicts God's word. Verse five, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing from good and evil. Did God actually say it? Did he really mean it? Inviting, provoking, tempting Adam and Eve, our first parents, to have this spiritual insecurity where we question whether or not God is for our good. It's the first time that we see that. Remember, all Genesis 1 and 2, it's, we've taken a long time to get here. Lots of good. Lots of holy ground. Lots of image of God and working and resting in the cool of the day with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Did God actually want to take care of you when he gave you these instructions so it begins with this lie. Did God really say it that way? And what we read, not just they had work and rest and communion with God, they have everything that they need. They have everything that they need in Genesis 1 and 2. That's what life was meant to be like. Life was as it should be in Genesis 1 and 2. And you and I, here's the deal, you and I keep hearing these lies. Let me speak personally. <clears throat> Did God really say, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Did God really say, as we've read, as Margaret read, as far as the east is from the west, that's what I've done to your sin. Well, what about those sins over there? Did God actually say that pride is really that bad and destructive? Did God really say a broken and addiction sort of relationship to money will destroy your soul. Did he really say that? Did he really say that humility brings life to everybody? Did he really say that to grow up is to become like a child? Did he really say it that way? Spiritual insecurity resulting from a lie that's questioning God's voice. Now, I do want to say this. Sin is not necessarily wrestling with God's word and promises. I hope that RUF, that you actually experience RUF to be a safe place to ask hard theological questions. To love the Bible and to submit to the authority of the scriptures shouldn't make us feel insecure about getting honest about how crazy the Bible is and asking hard questions of the Bible. That's not what I mean. The serpent is, saying, is twisting God's word and telling lies. He didn't say that I'm going to pave a new path. And that's what we see next. Sin isn't just a lie. It's also providing a new path. That's what the serpent does. A new life that you live for yourself. Sin is a life lived for yourself. Living life not for God and for neighbor, which was the whole point. Loving God and loving each other. But now you're li living life for yourself. That's what we see. And notice that the, ser the serpent, again, it's not just this like, hey, let me keep you on your toes and, and doubt his favor and his goodness and all that he's done in these first two chapters. But I want to give you a new roadmap. And this new roadmap is life curved in on yourself. And so here's the strategy. 
You don't have everything that you need, and so you need to go take life for yourself. Notice just the physical act of taking the, the fruit, taking life for yourself. It's a scarcity mindset. God is not for you. So you have to go do life on your own terms. It's life without reference to God. It's life re- without reference to all of the work that he did on our behalf. And in our case, on the cross and resurrection for us. But in their case, all that he did in Genesis 1 and 2. And living as if none of that ever happened on our own terms. And here's the irony. This is a tra- like this is sort of when you read this. I remember when someone highlighted this for me in college. It was so obvious. The serpent says, do it my way and do whatever you're wanting to do on your own terms and you'll be like God. Here's the irony. What did we learn a few weeks ago? They were already made how? In God's image. They were already like God. They didn't need to take matters into their own hands to be like God. He made them in his likeness. They don't just have all the resources. They have like how they're wired and how they're made. They're fine. They don't need to take matters into their own hands. So the lie, as Tim Keller says, sin always begins with this huge lie, and it's that God is not for me. God is not for me. So Breaking Bad uh, tells this story. If you've seen Breaking Bad, you know it's about Walter White. And Walter White is a high school chemistry teacher. He has a teenage son and a wife, and he gets diagnosed with, with cancer, and he doesn't have much time to live. And to, like, I guess just sort of chase adrenaline uh, down, he begins to cook meth, crystal meth, with a former student, and uh, Jesse Pinkman. And uh, Walter White and Jesse Pinkman, they start cooking all this meth, and it's, like, the best stuff in town, and they get famous. Um, It's somewhere, like, in the desert somewhere. I can't remember where in the U.S. that it is. If you've seen it, you know that the money and the fame and the power begins to like eat Walter White alive and it's much more addictive than anything that he cooks and his life falls apart and there's this pivotal scene towards the end of the series the most tragic and honest that Walter White ever gets because he and his wife when they argue about this lifestyle that he has because he's making so much money She's challenging him, and Walter White will respond, I'm doing it for you. I'm doing it for my family. So he'll justify these destructive meth-cooking habits and how crazy his life becomes for the family because of how much money he's making. Towards the end of the, the series, they're fighting again, and she's expecting him to say it. I did it for the family. I did it for you. You know, a martyr that he was, that he was trying to be. And he says with like such composure, I didn't do it for y'all. I did it for me. I did it for me. And it took however many seasons for him to just get there and be honest. Life for yourself. And what that story makes dramatic is how cosmic and how tragic sin is when you live life for yourself. Everyone suffers for it. It is the story of, of Putin's life right now. I mean, like, the sin, that is what the Bible calls what is happening in that man's heart right now. And you know what else? In my heart when I woke up. Because sin is not just out there with all the prodigal sons and the warlords. 
and the Walter Whites and the Putins and whoever else. That's also you and I. It's a level playing field, and we'll talk more about that in a second. It's what sin is, what sin does. Augustine has this great phrase for life on your own terms, life for yourself. There's this Latin phrase that I'm not going to try to pronounce, but it's getting at this idea of, of human beings after the fall are curved in on themselves. This is why the catch-all term for this is just navel-gazing. But it's literally like you're wrapped in a mirror. And you, it's, life is all about you all of the time, and that's all you know. That is the natural state of the human heart after this event. Okay, what sin is, what sin does. Let's do the first one that I want you to see about what sin does. It results in isolation. Isolation. Notice that Adam and Eve are now hiding. They didn't need to hide. They did not need to hide. They were with God. The point of it was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a, commu- a communicating, communal, relational God makes man in his image, and he made them to dwell with him in the garden, walking around, communing with him and with one another. But shame and sin grows in the shadows and isolation. And that's what we see in John's gospel in John 4, the Samaritan woman. Talked about the Samaritan woman a lot in RUF. Samaritan woman was essentially a prostitute. She also was a Samaritan, which she would have been like racially an outcast as well. And she was a woman in the first century, also made her an outcast. So um, morally outcast, racially outcast, and her gender outcast. Okay, that's the deal. She's drawing water. How is she drawing water? Alone. Shame is growing in the shadows. Of course she's alone. She's also going to draw water during the time of day where she knew that no one would be at the well because she doesn't want to make eye contact with anybody because of how people have been treating her probably for her whole life. Sin and shame grow in isolation. The worst thing for sin, and you think, if you want sin to die, get around other people. Isolation. Kurt Thompson, in his book called The Soul of Shame, puts it this way. When we experience shame, we tend to turn away from others because of the prospect of being seen or known by others carries the anticipation of shame being intensified or reactivated. However, the very act of turning away while temporarily protecting and relieving us from our feeling ironically simultaneously reinforces the very, the very shame we are attempting to avoid. Notably, we don't understand this when, when it's happening. We're just trying to survive the moment. But indeed, this dance between hiding and feeling shame itself becomes a tightening of the noose because we feel shame, and then we feel shame for feeling shame. It begets itself. And if you know this, the last thing, especially if you're a Christian and you're like tr- actually self-consciously trying to follow Jesus in college, when you're especially in a, like a sin pattern, like a, some sort of addiction in your life, when you're in a sin pattern, the last thing that you want to do after you like mess up and you fail is pray and be with other people and talk about it and be honest about it. You want to isolate. And what happens when you isolate? It reinforces how unlovable and how impossible you are. Sin always grows in isolation. We can unpack. That's why they're hiding themselves with those leaves. They had no shame. They have been naked together as one flesh 
is the first marriage that we see in the Bible. They didn't need leaves, y'all. They need leaves now. They have to hide. That's why they're doing that. Because sin and shame grow in isolation. The second, not just isolation, sin also results in alienation. Alienation. Again, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this, I love this language of this eternal, endless, Trinitarian dance of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they just can't help themselves. God, out of the overflow of his love, creates man as a relational creature, an animal that has to talk and interact and relate. And we were interacting with and walking with God, and sin breaks relationships. Sin severs and alienates us because God created us to be in relationship with him and one another and it alienates us from God and alienates us from one another. That's what we see. It breaks relationship, not just isolation where it festers and grows, but also it isolates us or it alienates us from God and from, from one another. Frederick Beatner describes anger this way. Now, as I read this, insert whatever deadly sin or sin pattern that like is choking you right now. Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor the last twosome morsel, both the pain you're given and the pain that you're going to give back. In many ways, this is a feast fit for a king. But the chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast at the end is you. Isolation and alienation. It's a perfect illustration because he's talking about it being at a, at, a, at a table, which is a relational place. And, an, and sin isolates us where we can't eat with anybody anymore. And we don't want to eat with anybody anymore because we're too good for them or we're alienated from them. Isolation, alienation. Okay, what is sin? Sin is... A lie that leads to life for yourself. And then we see what sin does. It results in isolation and alienation. Now we're going to do application. We're going to do so what? What do we do? Now, I want to say this. I was going to say this on the front end. And I wanted to actually take our time with this, with this sort of section, the so what question. When we go through books of the Bible and we just make our way through books of the Bible in RUF especially when we pick one word like sin and work and rest, we want to just focus on whatever passage that we find ourselves in. You could do an entire, and people have, a lot of ink has been spilled, hasn't it? A whole biblical survey on what the entire New Testament and Old Testament says about sin. We just wanted to zoom in bird's eye view of Genesis 3. So I, I'm, not, I'm not saying, I'm like scratching the surface of what sin is, how tragic it is, what it's done to us and the ripple effects. Okay, so I just want to, I want to like say that with just a sober-minded tone. We're, we're not saying everything, okay? But we are highlighting some things in this text. All right, so uh, what do we do about this? I want to introduce you to a term, and I want you to think of sin with this term. In the, this country, in your family, in the local church, in RUF, on this campus, and in your own heart, okay? Here's the term 
parasite. Sin is a parasite. Here's what I mean. Remember, a lot of good stuff's happened so far, hasn't it? We've been here, like, whatever week it is. Like, we've been doing a lot in Genesis 1 and 2. There was creation, it's good, it's good, it's good. This benediction blessing over that which God made. He delights in his world. He delights in those he made as his image bearers, okay? He loves his world. God loves his stuff, as one of my professors used to say. And that includes us. We're creation. Sin comes in as an intrusive, parasitic power. Intruder, that it's coming in from the outside, it doesn't belong. It hasn't been here. It does not belong. The problem is not creation. Okay? It hasn't been here. Intrusive, parasitic, parasite, latching on to the good stuff of Genesis 1 and 2 of God's good world that we actually read in Romans 8 that the creation even, y'all, not just you, is groaning for Jesus to come back. It says that all of creation is groaning for Jesus to make all things new. Not just our souls new, the whole world, okay? So intrusive, invading, coming on the outside, sucking the life out of all of God's good creation and sucking the life out of God's image in us. So what sin does to us is it distorts, twists, sucks the life out of God's image in us, okay? Parasite. Sin is a parasite. It does not belong. But it's also a power that you cannot handle. And I cannot handle. I can't handle this. Parasite. Intrusive from the outside. Parasitic, sucking the life out of us power. We are no match. Okay. The second thing, so I just, I want y'all to think of it like literally, like when you're praying and you're confessing and you're getting honest and you're having accountability in Christian friendships, like have that language. Like what is it? What it, and even just having the language of brother, that doesn't belong on you. That's not you. And you have the parasite language in your mind and category. Like that's not you. That that you're giving yourself to, the thing that's been done to you. It doesn't belong in God's world and it doesn't belong in your life. That has some like depth to it now, doesn't it? Okay, let's go to the second thing. Christians, now I'm, I'm gonna say this, like if you're on the fence spiritually, I'm so glad you're here for real, that you even feel comfortable coming where we like spend time opening the Bible, okay? I wanna talk to Christians right on this one, Okay. Y'all are called, we are called to renounce and mortify sin, not occasionally, but daily. Martin Luther, who started the Protestant Reformation, and one of the first things that he said, one of the most famous things that he said is that repentance in the Christian life is daily, not occasional. Daily, not occasional. The old word for repent, it just means to turn. What do you turn from? Turn from sin, turn to God, walk in his ways. Essentially, turn away from Genesis 3, do Genesis 1 and 2. That's the deal. Repent daily. Confession daily, not occasionally. Now, the old Puritan language of this is this language of mortify. There's a book that's called The Mortification of Sin. It's this creepy language, isn't it? It's violent language because this isn't a game. Why? Because of what we just talked about. Because we're no match and we don't want that to happen to us. We're going to get to the cross later. The cross, 
actually compels us to kill sin. It doesn't free us, free us to be like okay with it. Daily killing of sin. Another Puritan said this too. Kill sin or it's going to kill you. Kill sin or it's going to kill you. Okay. All right. Christians are called to daily renounce and mortify sin. Because let me say this, y'all. It is not the real you. It is not. It might feel like the real you. It's not. It's complicated. It's lifelong. But take my word for it. Well, take God's word for it. It's in the scriptures. Last thing is this, okay? Come up for air. <clears throat> if those nerdy terms, intrusive parasitic power, I was very proud of that. But <clears throat> um, the cross, the cross. Okay. Um, the Christian faith will not make sense to you if you do not have a biblical understanding of sin because the cross and resurrection is worthless without an understanding of sin. He's an example. He's a prophet. He's either God or he's not. He either said it's finished on the cross or he did not. He either walked up out of a graveyard or he did not. And he didn't do that to manage sin. He did that to kill sin, to defeat sin. When we say Christ is risen, we're not saying that like death has been managed. Thank God. Like we're wasting our, I want another job if that's true. Make a lot more money. If it's real though, it's the only thing that can meet sin head on because the how deep the Father's love, read those lyrics later. It puts it so well. It goes into the depths of what Genesis 3 has for us. Okay, I love Stranger Things. I love that show a lot. I'm very excited about this new season, even though by the time they make it, they're going to be like 25 years old. <clears throat> but anyway, I love Billy. He's such a, uh, a conflicted character. Just roll with me if you don't know who Billy is. He's like the Tim Riggins of, of Stranger Things. But season three, Billy is struggling on the struggle bus. And he has um, the shadow monster takes him over. And he's going throughout all of, you know, whatever Midwestern town that they're in. And he's going to beat people up. And he's just being a clown. But he's doing it because he's, ta- he's been taken over by the shadow monster he even goes and like tries to kill his younger sister. And there's this showdown at the end at the mall. Of course, it's in the, it's the 80s and it's in the mall. It's in the mall and the showdown is there. And it's the shadow monster and the minions, his minions. And then it's all the teens, you know, on the other side. And they're battling. And Eleven, perhaps the main character, Millie Bobby Brown's character, and Billy, finally, like, they start battling it out. And the shadow monster starts like kind of winning the day and Eleven starts talking to him. And here's what she says. Eleven says, seven feet. You told her the wave was seven feet. And she's referring to a childhood day, a memory of Billy's when he was on the beach with his mom. She goes on, you ran to her on the beach. And there were seagulls. She wore a hat with a blue ribbon, a long dress with a blue and red flower and a yellow and yellow sandals covered in sand. And she was pretty. She was really pretty. And you were happy. 
And as she says those words, something happens to Billy. The shadow monster leaves him immediately, and he wakes up. And he ends up, like, spoiler alert, he ends up doing some really self-sacrificial things on on behalf of the teens. He wakes up. Only love can drive out sin and meet it head on. Only love. Because what we read all over the scriptures is the agony of the cross for Jesus, the second person in the Trinity, not to be a military hero, but to die like an animal on a Roman cross for everyone to see. Love brought him there. Tim Keller says the story of the Bible is a story about gardens. Because the first story, the Bible opens with a really good garden. And there's a tragedy in the garden. And then we also read that Jesus finds himself in a garden, having a panic attack, essentially sweating drops of blood. And he's anticipating the cross. And he's saying, if there's any other way for this to happen, he knows it's going to happen. Let this pass from me, but yet your will be done, not mine. He literally lives the, Father, the, the, the Lord's prayer, goes to cross. And then we find another garden where there's a garden tomb. And he defeats the serpent in another garden. Only love defeats sin because we don't want someone to manage sin. I don't want Jesus to manage what's going on in Ukraine right now. I don't want Jesus to manage what cancer has done to your family members. I don't want Jesus to manage the physical, emotional, and sexual abuse that so many of y'all have experienced in your life. I don't want, if he's managing that, I don't want Jesus. And you don't want Jesus. But if he kills sin and death with a cross and resurrection, it's game on with him. It is. And you can trust him. Because fighting sin long-term, it is a grind, and it is lifelong. But we can trust him because of what he's done on our behalf. Next week, next time when we're in Genesis, we're going to see the first word on grace. And there's a promise in Genesis 3.15. Jack read it. There's a promise that a little boy is going to come from the line of Eve to do what we just described. And he really did it. And that is good news. Let me pray.